Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you worldwide listening from places like Crestwood, Kentucky, Dallas, Texas, Santa Ana, California, Morelia, Mexico, Wellington, New Zealand, and Frankfurt, Germany. Well, it's that time of year when the thunder of high-performance engines rumbles across the Utah desert. A few weeks ago, teams of dedicated builders and drivers and volunteers were chasing records at Bonneville Speed Week, and at the end of September, they'll be back for the 2021 World Finals. So, I thought for this episode, I'd tell you about a guy who made history on the salt, as well as on the drag strip and in the world of hot rodding. I'm talking about Mickey Thompson, the Speed King, and that's coming up right after this. You might already have a car collection, but do you have a racing car collection? If you've ever dreamed of the ultimate racing stable, there is a way. That's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, AutoArt, Mini Champs, and others. So for your racing stable, how about the 1991 Le Mans-winning Mazda 787B, or a Porsche 917 in Martini livery, or a Lancia Stratus rally car? Model Citizen also carries iconic street machines, like Kyosho's super-detailed Toyota FJ60 Land Cruiser. It's a big model in 1/18th scale, with doors that open and wheels that steer. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. That's ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, back to the Speed King, Mickey Thompson, right here on Horsepower Heritage. November 6, 1960, Lake Mead, Nevada. The skies are sunny and the water is calm. 31-year-old Mickey Thompson pulls a life vest over his shoulders, buckles his helmet, and climbs into the cockpit of his custom-built twin-engine speedboat. He's about to go for a new speed record. Less than one month earlier, Thompson had hit 406.6 miles per hour at the Bonneville Salt Flats, breaking a 12-year record and becoming the fastest man on wheels. But he's always looking to the next big thing, and he figures the hydroplane hull design of his new boat is just the ticket to become the fastest man on the water. It's powered by twin fuel-injected Pontiac Big Block V8s, and conditions are ideal to open her up and see what she can do. Thompson gives it throttle and puts the boat up on plane. He makes a run to the end of the lake, turns around, and accelerates to nearly 150 miles per hour. But he doesn't see the remains of a small wake in his path. And when the boat hits, it's launched into the air, spins into a nose-down attitude, and barrel rolls across the water. He gets thrown out of his seat, then slammed back down again. The impact fractures two of his vertebrae, and then he's thrown into the lake and it all took only about two seconds. Thompson is rescued from the water and taken to a hospital in nearby Boulder City. He's paralyzed from the waist down. The doctors tell him he'll probably never walk again. But he's never sat still his entire life and he's not about to do it now. The next weekend, his friends load him up in a van and drive him back to Southern California. When he gets home, he has them rig a rope and a pulley to his bed so he can lift his legs by pulling on the rope. He spends hours each day exercising in this way, and even though it causes tremendous pain, he's slowly getting the feeling back. First he can move his toes, then his feet, 
And within a couple weeks, Mickey Thompson is walking again. There isn't any time to lose because he's already preparing for the 1961 season at Bonneville. Marion Lee Thompson Jr. was born in the sleepy little town of Alhambra, California in 1928. Alhambra lies just a few miles east of Los Angeles, but it was small-town America at the time. Mickey was interested in cars from the start, and when he was a little kid, his father built him a soapbox racer. In 1937, the Thompson family took a road trip, and one of the places they visited was the Bonneville Salt Flats. Just a couple years earlier, Malcolm Campbell had broken the 300-mile-per-hour barrier there in his Bluebird Streamliner with its 37-liter Rolls-Royce V12 aircraft engine. Even at nine years old, Mickey dreamed of going fast on the salt, and in time, he would make history at Bonneville. The first gasoline engine he probably ever tinkered with came off an old Maytag washing machine, and he used it to power his own home-built go-kart. By his teens, he was tinkering with full-size cars and racing at stoplights. In fact, he was doing just that when he met his first wife, Judy, at only 16. After high school, Mickey got a job helping to run the printing press at the Los Angeles Times. And he spent his days off turning wrenches and building a dry lakes racer out of a 36 Ford. Hot Rodding was born in Southern California in the late 30s. And in the years just after World War II, the car building scene grew by leaps and bounds. Plenty of young men with mechanical ability were now out of the service and looking for an exciting hobby. So they were taking old jalopy Model Ts and hopping up the four-banger engines with bolt-on parts or dropping in souped-up flathead Ford V8s. Teenagers were flocking to clandestine drag races happening on the outskirts of Los Angeles in the middle of the night. One place they did it was through the orange groves that were all over Southern California, and that's where Mickey got started. They also formed car clubs and played dangerous games on the street with their rivals and generally became a nuisance to other drivers. And even Mickey got arrested once. Of course, not all hot rodders were careless, but traffic deaths in general were increasing in the late 1940s, and the newspapers began to portray hot rodders as a traffic menace. There was public outcry and safety campaigns, and the police began to crack down. A guy named Wally Parks realized that the hobby was getting a bad image, and he wanted to do something about it. Parks was a veteran hot rodder. He'd been building cars and racing on the lake beds since the late 30s, and he was active in the Southern California Timing Association, which was set up in 1937 to organize lakes racing and record the official results. So in the late 40s, some key things happened that would help change the image of hot rodding. First, Wally's friend, a publicity man named Bob Peterson, founded Hot Rod Magazine in 1947, and then he made Wally the editor. And then in 1950, a gas station owner named C.J. Hart started holding drag races on a section of runway at the Orange County Airport in Santa Ana. The airport was closed on Sunday, so that was race day. They decided to race over a quarter mile because that allowed plenty of room for runoff, but it was probably also because they could get through plenty of runs each day and it made it easier for the spectators to watch. Finally, Wally Parks created the National Hot Rod Association in 1951 to establish rules and safety standards for drag racing. Within a couple years, the NHRA was running sanctioned races. And of course, Mickey Thompson was deep into the racing scene. He took his 36 Ford to Bonneville for the first time in 1950, and he was building cars with scavenged parts and experimenting all the time. 
He was married to Judy now, and she was his helper, part-time engine builder, and moral support. But Mickey knew that he needed to make a name for himself by winning races, or he wasn't going anywhere. In 1953, he got a local Ford dealer to sponsor him in the La Carrera Panamericana Mexican Road Race. Halfway through the first day of the race, he was approaching a causeway along the Tehuantepec River. Just minutes earlier, another car had lost it on the curve and gone over the embankment. Spectators ran across the road to help the driver. And when Thompson came around the bend, there were people scattered in the road, including a woman and her small child. He hit the brakes and swerved to avoid them, but his car went over the side in the same place as the first car, and it landed on top of bystanders, killing five people. Thompson and his co-driver were unhurt, but the scene was horrible and Mickey was shaken. The locals didn't turn against them because they knew it had been a horrible accident, but they decided the best thing to do was salvage what they could from the wreckage and get out of Mexico. Fortunately, a photographer from Life magazine had caught the incident on film, and it cleared Thompson of any wrongdoing. After that, Mickey focused on going fast in a straight line. He built a car with twin flathead Ford V8s for Bonneville, joining the 200-mile-per-hour club in 1954. But drag racing was his first love. By that time, guys were stripping the bodies off their Model Ts to reduce the weight, and that led into building custom tube frames with a longer wheelbase for more straight-line stability, and they were even lighter machines. And they called these cars rail jobs. But with the new overhead valve engines like the Cadillac 331 and the Chrysler Hemi, the jump in horsepower made traction the weak spot. Thompson thought that if he could get more of the engine and transmission's weight over the rear wheels, it might help. So he modified his own Chrysler Hemi engine car by extending the tube frame behind the wheels and welding up a sort of basket, and that's where he put the driver's seat, hanging off the end. And at the same time, he shifted the entire drivetrain back in the frame. Another driver said he thought the setup looked like a stone about to be launched from a slingshot, and the name stuck. It's not entirely certain that Mickey Thompson was the first to build a slingshot dragster. But he was the first to demonstrate the concept worked. And it became the standard layout of the top fuel dragster class for 15 years. When he added streamlined bodywork to the car, he became the first to crack the 150 mile per hour barrier in a single engine dragster. He was constantly thinking of ways to modify parts and improve his cars. Day and night, he jotted in notebooks and planned new projects. And Mickey was also becoming more involved in business ventures. And he was the driving force behind the creation of the Lions Drag Strip near Long Beach in 1955, which local officials supported under the idea that it would cut down on illegal drag racing. He managed the operations there, and it was a perfect test track for his own cars. And sometime in the early 50s, Mickey got to know a fellow hot rodder named Fritz Voigt. Voigt was a genius mechanic and machinist, and he was well known in the Long Beach hot rod scene. And he was the guy who could take all of Mickey's crazy ideas that he jotted in that notebook and make them a reality. Together, they designed and built a twin Chrysler Hemi streamliner called the Thompson Voigt Special. The engines faced one another in the chassis, and they each had their own transmissions powering both the front and rear axles. In 1958, it set a record average speed over two runs at Bonneville, 266.866 miles per hour. 
with one of their runs getting to 294 miles per hour. And besides being fast, the car was a valuable testbed. Thompson and Voigt learned how to set up all the complex linkages they needed for multiple engines. They tried different fuels like alcohol and nitromethane. And they discovered that better tires were needed because the rubber had expanded so much on their speed runs that the tires were rubbing on the inside of the bodywork. Mickey didn't waste any time. He immediately began designing a new car, this time with four engines and transmissions, each driving an individual wheel. The goal was to break John Cobb's 1947 land speed record of 394.19 miles per hour. But to do that, they would need sponsorship and support. Mickey tried to get Chrysler to supply the engines, but they weren't interested. However, Pontiac had been pushing a new direction as the high-performance division at General Motors. With a fuel-injected 389-cubic-inch engine and a top-of-the-line model they called the Bonneville. So they agreed to send Mickey four used engines from their testing department. A large-diameter tube frame was welded up, and the team built a wooden buck over which they hammered out a streamlined aluminum body. Nested inside were the four Pontiac mills, along with four differentials, four transmissions, and four clutches. Mickey kept the slingshot dragster layout with the cockpit at the rear and included a drag chute to slow the car to a manageable speed for the brakes. Fritz Voigt worked out the linkages for the throttle, controlling 32 butterflies and, of course, the four transmissions. And somehow, Mickey got a special set of tires from Goodyear that were based on their jet fighter tires. And they were designed to run at 100 PSI, but had thin walls and tread to minimize thermal expansion and weight. Low-speed test runs, only 250 miles an hour, were made on the lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base. And then it was on to Bonneville in August 1959. The car had been painted light blue, the same color that Pontiac used on their engines at that time, and on the nose was the name Challenger 1. After the endless preparation and careful construction, it was time to see what she could do. Unfortunately, the results were not what they were hoping for, at a disappointing speed of 362 miles per hour. It was good enough for a class record, but it was far short of John Cobb's world speed record. They returned in 1960, and this time, each of Challenger 1's engines were topped by an enormous supercharger. The front wheel wells were now enclosed, and the car had a darker metallic blue paint job. This time, though, the track surface was rough, and Mickey could only do a few practice runs. Over the next few weeks, a small army of volunteers and even the Utah Highway Department carefully smoothed out the 11 miles of salt. And then on September 9, 1960, it was do or die. Mickey was shoehorned into the cockpit, and Challenger 1 roared to life. Conditions were perfect. On the first run, Mickey achieved a top speed of 406.6 miles per hour. But he needed a second run to make it official. As he accelerated, something happened in the complex linkage, and one of the transmissions missed a shift. The run was aborted, so the record couldn't be made official. Nevertheless, Mickey Thompson had become the fastest American driver in history, and the news was carried around the world. 
A month later, he was laying in the hospital in Boulder City with a broken back from the boat crash, and as you know, he beat the odds on that one. He was famous now, and the drag racing continued, supported by a strong relationship with Pontiac. Mickey Thompson Enterprises had become the umbrella company for all of his efforts, with a new line of tires and aftermarket parts in 1963. And things were humming along for a new racing challenge, the Indianapolis 500. An Englishman named John Crosswaite designed a mid-engine car for Mickey with an aluminum Buick V8. Dan Gurney, who was an Indy rookie, drove it there in the 1962 race. But he had to drop out after the transaxle seized when it lost its oil. They were back in 1963. Mickey's strategy this time was to lower the car's center of gravity as much as possible. So he used a 12-inch wheel and tires, and the chassis and bodywork were flattened out. Imagine a catfish on wheels and you'll have an idea of how the car looked. The strange tires were much wider with a low profile, completely unlike the rest of the field. And the cars got nicknamed the roller skate, and they didn't fare too well. For 1964, Mickey switched to Ford engines, and he signed a deal with Sears, who sold tires under the Allstate brand, which had never been run at Indy. They called the cars the Allstate Specials, running race numbers 82, 83, and 84. But the rules committee banned the smaller wheels and tires, and Thompson was forced to go back to Sears and have them make him the same tires in a larger size. But this was a fateful factor that would doom these cars. Because they had been designed around a smaller wheel and tire combination, the required 15-inch setup raised the car's roll center, and it seriously degraded handling characteristics. And there was virtually no adjustment possible in the suspension. So these shortcomings made the cars unstable over 145 miles per hour. And they were uncompetitive since the rest of the field could run faster. Drivers Mastin Gregory and Dave McDonald both reported problems through the fall of 63 and the spring of 64. Mickey decided to enclose the wheels, reasoning it would enhance the car's stability and maybe give them the speed they needed. It was a radical appearance compared to every other car at Indy and much more like the Can-Am cars that would come within a couple of years. But the bodywork didn't solve the problem. In fact, it made things worse. Now the car was lifting above 145 during practice. The highest stable speed that could be achieved was just 120. And what no official inspection had yet discovered was that Mickey had connected a steering linkage to the right rear wheel, giving the car three-wheel steering in an attempt to maintain better traction through the turns. It was Colin Chapman, the founder of Lotus Cars, who noticed it by chance during a visit to Thompson's Indy Workshop. However, it didn't pass muster with the Rules Committee, so the experiment was abandoned. In early May of 64, the Thompson team worked around the clock, tearing the cars down to their bare chassis, tuning the suspension, and making the tube frames more rigid. The streamlined bodies also got reworked, including a different nose. But back at Indy on May 13th, Mastin Gregory's number 84 car began to lift on the straight and drastically understeer. He spun and hit the wall. That was the last straw for Gregory, and he quit the team after telling Mickey that he thought the full fenders were trapping air at speed. 
So they cut the top of the fender arches out on the number 83 car of Dave McDonald, and it did reduce lift, allowing him to run at an average 155, just in time for qualifying on May 16th, which he succeeded in doing. McDonald was in his fourth season of racing, and he'd been in Corvettes and Cobras on road circuits, but this was his first time at Indianapolis. But it was one step forward and two steps back. McDonald lost his engine during practice. Maston Gregory's replacement, Eddie Johnson, spun into a wall. They repaired the car, and Johnson qualified on May 24th. The third car was tried out by another driver, but after spinning it twice, he bowed out too. It was no secret that trouble had been following the Allstate Specials the whole time. When Formula One champion Graham Hill tried one of the cars out, he thought it was terrible. In fact, he called it diabolical. And for some time, Dave McDonald's friends had wanted him to walk away from the Thompson team. Carroll Shelby even offered to build him a car for the following season if he decided to quit. And after following McDonald in his Lotus, Formula One star Jim Clark, who had qualified on the pole, saw the car behaving erratically. Most likely, he realized the suspension was fighting the steering input and the body was still lifting its speed. He reportedly told McDonald, mate, just walk away. Dave McDonald wouldn't do it. He knew that Mickey had sunk his heart and soul into this thing and he was getting a lot of pressure from Ford to make it work. May 30th, 1964, race day. The new Ford Mustang is the official pace car and Ford wants Mickey Thompson's team to do well. As the green flag drops, Jim Clark's Lotus begins to pull away from the field almost immediately. Dave McDonald is making progress on the first lap, passing five other cars, but already the Allstate Special is getting squirrely. On the second lap, as he dives left to the inside to make another pass, his car's nose catches the air and the front wheels lift off the ground. The car keeps rotating left, hits the inside wall, and the saddle tank ruptures. It's now a fireball headed for the outside wall. Another driver, Eddie Sachs, is pinched and he runs straight into McDonald, killing him instantly. Fire crews arrive and put out the blaze. Dave McDonald is rescued, but dies at 1.20 in the afternoon from burns to his lungs. He was 26 years old. For the first time in Indy 500 history, the race was stopped. In all, seven cars were caught up in the inferno. The race resumed hours later, and A.J. Foyt took the checkered flag. But Foyt had a grim look on his face in front of the cameras. Victory was under the dark cloud of losing two men. Mickey Thompson tried again at Indy several times through the mid-1960s, but the team never qualified. He turned back to drag racing and Bonneville, and his tires and aftermarket's parts business continued to do well. But it took a toll on his personal life. Mickey was relentless in everything he did. He was a complete workaholic, and he and Judy were divorced in 1969. He remarried a few years later. And it was on to the next big thing, off-road desert racing. And in 1973, he founded SCORE, Southern California Off-Road Enthusiasts, which became the official organization for Baja Racing. And then Mickey Thompson brought desert trucks and dirt bikes to stadiums in the 1980s, packing thousands of fans in for exhibition shows. 
He could have retired the king of motorsport, but it wasn't in him. He was planning to return to the salt in a new car, the Challenger 2, piloted by his son, Danny. Then on March 16, 1988, the racing world was shaken by the unthinkable news that Mickey Thompson was dead. It didn't seem believable, but he and his second wife, Trudy, had been gunned down in the driveway of their Southern California home. After many years of investigation, police arrested a man named Michael Goodwin in the killings. Goodwin had been Mickey Thompson's business partner in the stadium shows, but things went sour when Mickey discovered Goodwin had mismanaged funds to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, so he sued Goodwin and won. But Goodwin refused to pay. During the trial, the prosecution said that Goodwin swore revenge on Mickey and hired a pair of hitmen to take him out. Michael Goodwin was convicted in January 2007, and he's serving two life sentences. The story of Mickey's demise has been told many times since then. Unfortunately, to some degree, it's overshadowed the incredible story of the man who accomplished so much in motorsport. In his career, he set 485 speed records, he made many innovations in drag racing, and he was at the forefront of the hot rod world. So, to many gearheads, Mickey Thompson is still the king. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me five stars and a quick review. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way. Always appreciated. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.